Welcome to the Anxious Voyage. If you think that title sounds bleak or foreboding, one of two things must be true. You're very lucky or you need to get out more. On this program, we share stories of life and living. We compare notes. We discover commonalities. We accept that life is a glorious, heartbreaking thing, and we embrace and celebrate all of it. Take the ride with us. We're glad you're here. Now, here's your host, Mark O'Brien. Hello again, and welcome to the Anxious Voyage. As always, we are coming to you from World Headquarters in Middletown, Connecticut, the home, of course, of uh, Magnetic Horseshoes. The next time you play horseshoes, make every pitch a winner. Um, and I'm going to apologize if uh, any of you hear a slight echo in our audio today. Um, we weren't able to figure out what that was caused by, so we're going to have to put up with it, I guess. Um, my guest today is Joseph Carabas. Uh, Joseph is a, a prolific author, among many other things, which we will learn about as we go. So welcome, Joseph. Howdy. Howdy. Um, from what I've learned about you, from some of our conversations, from having read some of your books, and from finding information about your background from somewhere, I'm not even sure where, um, I understand that um, you had something of a different, if not challenging, upbringing. Um, and were, as I understand it, largely in the care of a grandfather for a while. Would you care to share some of that with us? When I was uh, very, very young, I really don't know just how young, less than a year old maybe, quite young, um, the pediatrician that my parents were seeing told them that I was, uh, at the time we used the term retarded, I guess now we would say intellectually challenged. And <clears throat> my parents um, found having an intellectually challenged child something they couldn't deal with or didn't want to deal with. So they were going to have me institutionalized. And uh, my grandfather stepped in and said, no. I'll, I'll take him. I'll raise him. And he did. Until he passed. Wow. The um, real challenge was that I was born blind and nobody knew it. Pediatrician didn't check. I have no idea. How was your blindness revealed or discovered? Ms. Graf, my, my kindergarten teacher, uh, we didn't have special schools back then. So no matter what your disability was, you went in with the regular, at least where I lived. So Miss <clears throat> Graf, when she was teaching the children, she would, you know, point out things. And she noticed that I ever, never looked where she was pointing. And when people were doing stuff, instead of looking at them, I would go like that because I would use my ears uh, to see effectively. So she contacted my parents um, and they, you know, 
had my eyes tested and went, oh my God. I remember the, uh, the, the eye doctor, the optometrist, no, the um, ophthalmologist. Um, he was very impressed that I was able to get around as well as I could, considering how misshapen my eyes were. Hmm. It's not that my eyes didn't function, it's just that they were so misshapen in my head, basically little football shapes instead of spherical, that they never focused. As I grew older, they began to focus more and more, but I was uh, legally blind until I was 65. When, when you started to say six, I was waiting to hear 16. Um, wow. So, so the shape of your eyeballs effectively changed by itself? Well, as you grow older, as anybody grows older, the skull shape changes, the physiology, physiognomy, I should say, changes. And it did for me as well. And my, my eyes, which were... Um, hmm. They were misshapen, but they were like this instead of round. They were taller than they were round. Mm. So my lenses were firing way back, trying to focus way back, basically in the middle of my skull. And as I got older, the, the occipital cavity shaped differently, you know, as it will when anyone gets older. You know, the, the cranium stitches itself together, the sinuses... Uh, seal up so that we're not sucking snot all the time. Mm. That's a technical term, snot. I'm not sure. No, I, 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 I picked that right up. Thank you. I'm going to guess that your vision was able to be corrected with glasses such that as you went through school, you could read. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, I was interviewed few years ago by someone uh, and I made it a point to save the last set of glass lenses that I had that I had been given because uh, prior to the operations in 1965 and when I was 65 when I was 65 um, prior to those operations I had to have my glasses changed about every month and a half because my eyes were deteriorating so rapidly and uh, so I showed them the lenses, and I, I showed them. The lenses were quite thick. And I said, i got to understand, this was the weight on my face carried by my nose and my ears. So I was constantly looking down at the floor because of the weight on my face. And, uh, you know, I said, you know, if you could, you could hurt somebody if you threw these at them, you know. So, yeah, but it was, it was corrected. Uh, my glasses basically had to be changed every time there was a, a growth in me. You know, every time I grew, got a growth in me. Hmm. Um, um, I have the impression, and I and I want to connect this to the challenges that you clearly overcame as a young person. Um, I'm under the impression that beyond, I'm guessing, high school. Um, you don't have any formal education, and yet you are probably one of the most educated people I know because you've taken it upon yourself to be that way. Uh, and I have right here a list of all of the occupations you've held 
Um, everything from uh, long haul trucker, apprentice butcher, and lumberjack to uh, chief research scientist, chief neuroscience officer, neuromarketer in residence, and chief research officer. How in the world did that happen? Got lucky. <laughs> right. Um, <clears throat> well, my formal education, I went to college three times, and fortunately, none of it stuck. Um, on my LinkedIn profile, I make reference to a MASH, TV show MASH episode, uh, Dear Dad, I think it is. And there is a uh, character in that episode. I believe his name is Casey. Comes to the 4077, which is where Alan Alda's mash unit was, or what they were called. And uh, he's a brilliant surgeon. He's just over the top. And it comes out in later in the episode that he's not a surgeon. He never went to medical school. And the Army is looking for him because hmm. he's basically an imposter. I see my camera is deciding to have fun. Um, so Alan Alda's character, Hawkeye, says to him, what's going on? He says, why don't you go to medical school? You're brilliant, You're phenomenal. And he says, I've been an engineer. I've been a pastor. I've been, you know, he lists like five or six different things. And he says, I can do them all. I just don't have the patience to get a degree. Hmm. And I went, yeah, that's, that's me. Um, one time I decided to take some courses uh, and the professor gave us the leading, uh, reading list and he happened to read off on his list a paper that I had gotten published, scientific paper. And he looked up at me and he goes, are you related to this guy? And I just, okay, you don't know much of anything. I probably should not be in this class. Uh, as far as taking it on myself, there have always been things which fascinate me. There are things which still fascinate me, things which I still need to learn. I have a desire to learn. I want to learn. And throughout most of my childhood into college, people were telling me that I'm too stupid, too ignorant, don't know how to do it. You know, I had one physics professor berate me in front of the class literally say, uh, you're too stupid, you're too stupid, you couldn't figure it out last year, you can't figure it out this year, why don't you make it easy on everybody else and just get out of the class? This is back in the 1970s where, oh, okay. Um, but instead, I went to the dean of the college who was panic-stricken and didn't know what to do because I still could have sued them, you know, on the college, on the university. What do you want to do? <clears throat> He's working real hard to make sure I don't do anything that's going to hurt the school. And I said, I like that professor. Let me study with him. Would you mind? Sure, let's do it. So to save the department, that professor took me on. I was still having a very difficult time. Uh, and let me explain how the difficult time was. At that point in time, in the 1970s, there was no connection between relativity and quantum mechanics. 
<clears throat> and I looked at both fields because they fascinated me. And I spent a night rewriting the systems. Came back the next day to the professor who was now mentoring me. And I said to him, look what I figured out. I don't know if I've made a mistake, but look what I figured out. If you go back to the basic constructs, the basic principles, the first principles of each, there is one element that ties them two together. And I did the entire derivation on the blackboard in his office. And his response was, but you didn't do the homework I saw. And I, and I said to him, I don't have what it takes to be a physicist, do I? And he said, no, I don't think you do. And I thanked him. I shook his hand and I thanked him. I said, you have no idea how much you have liberated me. You have freed me from pursuing this path, meaning the formal education path. And, um, you know, I don't want to say of course, but I did go on to make contributions to many, many fields. Because I didn't take the traditional path, because I did not learn the way everything needed to be learned. I learned very different. I've, I've actually been thinking about your comment about patience. You said you early on, you said you didn't have the patience for it. Do you think? Do you think that had to do with the pacing of what was being? quote unquote, taught to you? Or do you think it had to do with what was being taught or the curriculum not keeping up with your curiosity? I would say the latter, not keeping up with my curiosity. Um, when I was in high school, I took a what we would now call an honors physics class did horribly in it until <clears throat> there was a problem that the physics professor, physics teacher, Mr. Grew, who was a great teacher. He was a phenomenal teacher. He couldn't figure it out. And I looked at it and I said, how much is it worth you to have me figure that out? And they're all cracking. Everybody in the class is, yeah, right, Joe. Yeah, okay, Carabas, you know. And for whatever reason, I guess word got around school that I didn't do well, but get the heck out of the kid's way when he wants to do something. So he said, um, well, you know, I, I can't pay you to, to do the work. So I said to the group, to the class, I said, anybody want to bet me a dollar? This is back in the 1960s, so small money. Anybody want to bet me a dollar? that I can figure that out. Four or five people said, yeah, sure, you're on. Because they thought it was easy money. Came back the next day, put it all on the board, and Mr. Grew is like, wow, that's, how did you figure that out? <laughs> I went through the steps. And he was like, he turned around, he said, everybody, pay the boy. He did it. He solved it. And, he's, <laughs> and he solved it in a way that's not in the book. He figured this out on his own. And nobody paid me. <laughs> However, I did realize I could make money. How much more do you want me to talk about this? 
as much as you would like. You certainly have my attention. When I was um, 15, uh, maybe even younger, maybe 14, earth science class in high school, Mr. Edwards, uh, just a wonderful guy. Mr. Edwards was in charge of the astronomy club. And one day, I don't really remember why I decided I was going to go to where they had the telescope out in the evening. To be honest with you, I suspect there was some girl in the astronomy club that I wanted to spend time with. Because when you're young, glands can very often override intellectual curiosity. Yes, anyway, I loved astronomy. Oh, my God, I ate it up. I studied it on my own. I got my own telescope, which I still have, Tasco. Uh, I also have several other telescopes now, but I have that still. And uh, I would spend my nights um, out in my backyard or in a nearby park with the telescope. And I would make notes. I would make notes on my observations. So... I went to the astronomy thing and, you know, I show up and Mr. Edwards is like, oh, my God. Hi, Ted Joseph. Nice to have you here. And everybody's swinging the tel their telescope around, blah, 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 blah. And I went, no, look over there. That's Mizar and Alpharetz. It's a binary star system. That scope should be able to pick it up at about 400 mm. What? And if you look at that bright object over there, that's actually Saturn, which right now is coming out of the ecliptic. So you should be able to see the, the rings at about a 15 degree angle. And I just spent the night, stuff which was very common knowledge to me. And, you know, so now we're in Mr. Edwards' class. And he still doesn't know if he can trust me. We had a professor from Northeastern come in because there were these things coming out. There, I don't know if you ever heard of them. They're called computers. They were as big as a room. But boy, could they do stuff. Anyway, so this professor comes in and he's basically trying to get people interested in studying computer science, going to Northeastern. And he put a pseudocode, what's called a pseudocode up on the board. It's basically a logic flow for how you would solve the problem. And I'm sitting in the back of the room and I looked at it and I just went, no, that's wrong. And Mr. Edwards is, oh. This professor from Northeastern looks at me, looks at what he wrote. Where is it wrong? And I told him. I said, quote, step three to step four, you know, you actually need some other steps in there first. So he, okay, all right. And he put the steps in. What else is wrong? Fall down over here. Down, down, down. Okay. So at the end of the class, Mr. Edwards is apologizing profusely, and this professor walks up to me and says, what's your name? I told him. And he said, here's my card. Would you have your parents contact me? Sure. What the hell? Why not? My parents don't give a crap about me. Um, <clears throat> if, I can't, if I came home at night, they were like, what are you doing here? So anyway, um, my parents never called him. He actually called us. Of course, my parents immediately, what has he done now? What trouble has he caused? You know, you know, 
want to sell them to juvenile hall? Good. Get, get them out of the house. And he said, no, would you mind if uh, I hosted him down at Northeastern for a day over the week? No, great. Get him out. So I took a bus down to Northeastern. And uh, he was there with some graduate students and some professors from MIT. And they were talking with me. And I, I really didn't know what the hell I was talking about. I was just answering the questions. So at the age of 15, I was accepted into MIT. <laughs> However, my upbringing did not give me any kind of whatever for MIT. Should we be going to a commercial break soon? Um, in just a minute, yes. Thank you. Um, so I, I couldn't deal with MIT, with the classroom situation. And the first day, I you know. So they huddled, and they said, would you be willing to work at Lincoln Labs, which is a research facility, was a research facility. Yeah, sure. So I got a job at Lincoln Labs on what was then a supercomputer. Hmm. Um, and now we can go to the commercial break because my dog is barking and has to go to the door. Okay, well, I haven't heard your dog, uh, but thank you for that reminder, and uh, thank you for knowing more about the show than I do. So, yes, we will go to our first commercial break. We will be back in exactly three minutes. See you then. Everybody has a story. Everyone's story deserves to be told, and the only bad stories are the ones we don't share. That's why Mark O'Brien created The Anxious Voyage. It's Mark's conviction that every story deserves to be shared, and his purpose is to give people in all walks of life, from any circumstances, a chance to tell their stories. The Anxious Voyage is now on syndicated Dream Vision 7 radio network every Monday at 1 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern Time, with live broadcast every first and third Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Please tune in, please join Mark, and please share your stories. Given what you were just explaining about your education, um, I'm just I'm just going to jump ahead because I know there has to be a story here in the middle. You have something like seven patents. Do I have that right? Five main patents and derivative patents from those. Okay, so given where you left us in the lab. Um, how how do we possibly cover the work that you must have started doing there to developing seven products or services for patents? How does that happen? Um, what I learned there primarily was how to think logically and clearly from a gentleman now past who I consider a master logician, John Leslie. Um, Hmm. Very patient, very giving, um, very irritating at times, as all good teachers must be. Anyway, <clears throat> so nothing that I learned there directly turned into the patents, except um, laterally, I guess I would say. Because I continued to have difficulties in mainstream society. Um 
And then I was at the University of, uh, I'm sorry, Michigan State in East Lansing, University of Michigan in East Lansing, taking some courses. And a wonderful woman there, Seal, I won't share her last name to preserve her uh, privacy. Um, she and I were talking. And she made a comment about some of the ways I was saying stuff. And I, okay. <clears throat> but she was a uh, child psychiatrist, psychologist, psychiatrist. So she was very sensitive to how childhood development occurs. And she sensed out what had happened to me without my saying it. Because at this point in time, we don't talk about these things. We don't talk about childhood trauma, childhood abuse, sexual abuse when you're a child by a parent. These things aren't mentioned. They're not talked about. Bullying is not a thing we talk about. It's just, you know, toughen up. Um, so she just kind of put a bug in my ear. When I got back home, I remembered which, because I, my memory is, what was your name again? No. My memory is, um, I'm told it's better than most people. How's that? Um, anyway, so I started researching the subjects. And that led me to uh, study, start studying neurophysiology and neuroscience. And that's when I realized my challenges were not because I was stupid, ignorant, and idiot. My challenges were because my brain was literally wired differently. What now might be called neurodiversity. Back then, no, neuro what? Huh? So, <clears throat> because I was born blind and because of my grandfather's teachings, my brain had developed differently. Physically, all the same pieces everybody else had, but my memory mapped very differently. My hearing mapped very differently. My sensory systems mapped completely differently. Um, so traditional teaching methods at the time, traditional societal interactions at the time were challenged. Not to mention I was um, dyslexic and also, as I'm sure some of your audience will recognize, I'm a high functioning um, high-functioning person. Anyway, um, so your audience will be able to tell because I don't look into the camera very much. I look down a lot. Um, anyway, I realized all these things, and I began putting stuff together. And I said, there is a way for this to be fixed in a lot of people. Because not, I couldn't be the only one suffering from this. I couldn't be the only one having to deal with this. Turns out a lot of people are. Now we recognize a lot of people are. To solve what I realized was doable, I had to go back and borrow equations from quantum mechanics, from fractal geometry, from highly advanced gravitational studies, what's called hydrodynamic, uh, geohydrodynamics. Um, I had to study virology, immunology, 
to borrow equations and methodologies from there. I had to study languages. I had to study neurophysiology. I, somebody <clears throat> who worked for the company Susan, my wife, and I created once actually sat down and said, your patents cover 120 different fields. I went, yeah, well, you know, you got to stitch things together so they'll work. And uh, that's how that all came about. The, the original purpose of what I had come up with, I intended it to be used in education. Back in the early 1990s, mid-1990s, online courses? What? What is that? You're going to be kidding me. Computer learning? What is that? Come on, you're going to be kidding me. <laughs> um, so... A friend of mine who owned a company up here in Nashua, New Hampshire, and I was working with, she said, <clears throat> let me see if I have this right, Joseph. You have, you've developed a technology that understands how people think just by how they use their computers, by how they interact with the mouse and the keyboard. And I went, yeah, yeah. And I explained it all. And she said, great. I don't understand any of that, but I believe you. You developed a marketing tool. So <clears throat> we created a, a small subset of what I had done that literally observed without um, interfering, without recognizing you as you, as Mark O'Brien. It recognized you as a neural map, a way of thinking. And it was able to modify information on the fly, literally, so that you would understand the process it as rapidly as possible. Beautiful for education. Nobody wanted to do an education. Marketing? Oh, yeah. And, of course, the, the bulk of the patents then went on to do all sorts of things. Can you imagine the, imagine the usefulness of something that, according to the U.S. Patent Office, Next Stage had developed a technology that allows computers to understand and respond to human thoughts through any human machine interface. So imagine your car knowing you're not the one to be driving it or someone else shouldn't be driving it. You're incapacitated. Imagine a weapon knowing you're not in a state to fire it, or you're not the person who owns the weapon. Imagine aircraft. This one's tender to me. <clears throat> Imagine passing your aircraft knowing the pilot is under duress or at stress, possibly because of a hijacking. And sending out a quiet alert to scramble the fires. So the technology went around the world. It was in use in 125, 130 countries. We had offices everywhere. And Susan and I walked away from it. So there you go. Um, a, a, a couple of things come to mind. One is neurofeedback training. The other is what whatever kind of computer wizardry is used for jury selection um i wondered if what you just described if neurofeedback training and jury selection technology are derivatives of your work if you don't mind my asking and if you do just tell me why did why did the why did the part you were talking about pilots being incapacitated or hijacked get to you so emotionally? 
experience. I've known people who were hijacked. I've known people who were carjacked. I've known people who've had their children taken from them. I've known people who've had their villages okay. destroyed. All right. Thank you. I'm I'm sorry. I I I, I didn't mean to uh, invoke that as I did, but. No, that's fine. That's fine. I, you know, thank God I now have a full set of emotions to respond with. You know, it's not, it is, what I experienced is painful, but if I had not gone through it, I would not have created the things I created. I would not have written the books that I've written, which people repeatedly come to me and say, you've changed my life. I never thought of things like that. I never realized such things were possible. I have done more, I feel, through my pain and overcoming my pain. I can't be upset by it. I cry because, yeah, things happen. But think of what the world has gained. Not me, not me, but you. Sorry. Uh, in, in all candor, having accomplished nothing like what you've accomplished, um, no, I can't. I can't imagine what that feels like. I cannot. Uh, I cannot imagine how enormous. You're muted again, Mark. <laughs> um, all, all I can tell you is I don't know what's going on because I'm not doing that. Um, so I can't imagine. Mark, you have accomplished amazing stuff. You have accomplished stuff that I could never dream of. I could never have experienced. I listen to the stories you tell, the books you've written for children. My God, what a gift you have. Wake up, man. Realize that you have done more in your life than, you know what? You're running laps. Other people are sitting on the couch still. Okay? You. you amaze me by what you have brought into the world. Be aware of it. Uh, I think then um, we can call this a mutual admiration society. How's that? Yeah. Find better people to be admired. You know. No, 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 no. I'm not going to let you get away with that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this, and then maybe this is the best place for us to take the next break. But when when you were talking about the things you had done and, and and when you realized what you could do to to help yourself and others in the process you kept saying you had to study this you had to study that you had, no 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 you didn't have to how in the world did you connect as many dots as you did uh, because of the way I was raised by my grandfather, I've always been a lateral thinker and a translational type of person. Um, I Straight lines bore me. Uh, besides, one of the things my grandfather taught me early on was, uh, if you want to know anything, you must know everything. One of the great lines of Stephen Hawking, if you really want to make an apple pie from scratch, you have to create the universe. 
That's what I keep doing wrong. Dang, I thought it was the cinnamon. Oh well. All right. We will um we will take our second break here. Uh I'm just gonna say to Rachel, the producer, if I don't hear the commercials again for whatever reason, uh please do let me know when we're coming out of break. Thank you. We'll be back shortly. Are you ready for the quantum age? Humanity's next step in evolution? Dream Vision 7 Radio Network invites you to the extraordinary platform of evolutionary voices for the quantum age. Let's explore. Learn more about this upcoming age where we bridge science with spirituality. Where potentiality meets reality. Where we take compassion into action. Our trailblazers and visionaries will ask the whys, the what ifs, while igniting continuous possibility. Come along with us into an age beyond what we know today, where we can grow together in unity consciousness. Experience evolutionary voices for the quantum age, Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern on DreamVision7Radio.com. You can't establish your brand's authority without a voice. That's why since 2004, O'Brien Communications Group, OCG, has been helping companies establish their authority, find their brand's distinct voices, and position their brands effectively and persuasively. So effectively that nine of OCG's clients have been acquired by other companies. OCG's business model emphasizes efficiency and results, not hourly billing, markups, and media commissions. That ensures OCG's advice is unbiased and its clients aren't at financial risk. If you're ready to find your voice and use it to tell your story, OCG is ready to help. You can find O'Brien Communications Group on the web at O'BrienCG.com. That's O-B-R-I-E-N-C-G.com. Or call 860-944-9022. Calling all authors. Have you been considering an audiobook? Well, look no further. Come take advantage of DreamVision 7 Radio Network's unique in-house audiobook production, which includes benefits and bonuses from our radio station. Let our knowledgeable staff guide you to create the audiobook you've always dreamed of without breaking the bank. Check out our full one-stop service from A to Z, including the ACX process. Schedule a free consultation by calling 508-226-1723. That's 508-226-1723. Or go to dreamvision7radio.com. Everybody has a story. Everyone's story deserves to be told. And the only bad stories are the ones we don't share. That's why Mark O'Brien created The Anxious Voyage. It's Mark's conviction that every story deserves to be shared, and his purpose is to give people in all walks of life, from any circumstances, a chance to tell their stories. The Anxious Voyage is now on syndicated Dream Vision 7 radio network every Monday at 1 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern Time, with live broadcast every first and third Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Please tune in, please join Mark, and please share your stories. This is Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, uniting mankind with universal love. Our shows are created from the heart, bringing each listener to a place of divine enlightenment. Breathe, relax, and enjoy. Let life flow. Uh, welcome back, everyone, and uh, welcome back to you, Joseph, and thank you, um, my uh, head was swimming during the commercial break. Um, 
I would like to talk with you in this segment about writing, your writing in particular. Um, and I suspect, yeah, there you go. Not that you're prolific or anything. Um, I suspect there is a straight line that I don't see between all of, I'm just going to refer to it generally as scientific work and research that you've done and how that translates into the fiction you write. So let's start there. How does that, how does that happen? Um, I have all this stuff in my head and I sit down at a keyboard or a pencil paper and I go through it. <laughs> um, as I understand it, on more than one occasion, um, Ernest Hemingway was at risk of being um, litigated against by uh, some of the characters in his stories that were, um, I guess I'm going to say, a, a little too close to their sources in real life. Uh, have you ever encountered anything like that? Not yet. I hope I never do. Wow. Um, okay. In having read some of your fiction, um, I, I, I thought of people. Uh, some of your characters reminded me of people. Have you, have you at least had people suggest to you that you might be getting close? <clears throat> yeah. In the writing of... Uh, the shaman, uh, my editor said two things. She said she was, she could recognize some of the people that, were, that I had as characters. <clears throat> and I went, okay. And her other concern was you tell people you write autobiography and you have this character who can do some things. Are you worried? that people are going to think you're the character. And that was actually a big debate, um, which <clears throat> in the end, I said, I'm not going to be worried about it. You know, if, if my book, if my sales hit Stephen King's numbers and uh, you know, JK Rowling's, Nora Roberts, Baldacci's, number one, I'll say thank you. Number two, I'll probably be able to, you know, afford to escape to somewhere, you know, wherever. <laughs> um, I did have uh, a woman contact me. There are several chapters in The Shaman where the main character kind of traverses the next world. What comes after this world? And she had recently lost a loved one and wanted to know without asking, is that something that I could do? Mm. Well, you've probably seen me in enough other venues to know that if you don't ask me a direct question, I'm not going to answer you. And she was incapable of, answer, of asking me a direct question. So I, I appreciate your loss. I feel your pain. I understand. But until you specifically ask me if you want me to do something, I can't answer you. 
because you won't know what you're asking. I won't know what I'm answering. I find that, and I think from having had conversations with you in larger group settings, that 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 kind of precision that you required in the question that was being asked of you finds its way into your writing. And we, we had a conversation in a small group recently in which you were talking about recognizing things that you've written in a, a, a draft of a particular work that you recognized did not belong there. And and I'm and I'm guessing the kind of specificity you required of the person asking you the question must be part of how you know, because I'm I'm not sure I recognize that in things that I write. How do you know? That's your question. How do I know when something doesn't belong in the story? <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Whoa, I forgot who I'm talking to. Yes, how can you tell when you read your own writing that things you've written don't belong in a particular work? They don't uh, progress the plot. They don't drive the reader towards the story's conclusion. They may be fascinating. They may be useful. They may be interesting diversions, diversions. But if they are not somehow necessary to getting the story told, they have to come out. Do, do you know before you've started writing what the conclusion toward which you should be driving or the action should be driving the reader is? I very often will know the final scene of a novel. And in, in seeing, seeing that final scene, I will pick up or I will recognize the major plot points that have to happen there. I don't always know the intermediary pieces. Uh, and that's kind of the fun. The question you're asking in the writing community is, are you a pantser or a plotter? Plot, plotter. Pantser, you write by the seat of your pants. You just sit down and let her go, whatever it happens. I am a plotter in that when I am outlining the story, I know the major plot points. I even know some of the minor plot points. I am a pantser that when I'm connecting the plot points, I just sit down and go, yeah, ooh, that was good. Whoa, that's a nice one. <laughs> what happens next? Oh my God, that's and I, you know, Susan will be sitting across the room from me as I'm typing away, and I'll pull back. I'll sit back, and she'll go, "Yeah, come on, what, what, what happened? That was good." I can tell by the way you're writing, you were you were saying, "Oh, it's good." So I'll read it to her, and she'll go, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's got to be in the story." I hope so. I read an interview once with uh, Ray Bradbury, and the interview the interviewers interviewer, sorry, was asking him how he created his storylines or story arcs. And he said, I don't, because that's not my job. And the interviewer said, oh, what is your job? And Ray Bradbury said, I have two. One is to create characters real enough that they are just going to do what they do. The second job is to have the courage to let them. Was yes. Ray Bradbury a pantser? Um, he may have said he was. I, I've never heard the term before. You just said it. 
well, happy to have increased your vocabulary. <laughs> um, okay. It's, uh, was he a pantser? I, I would, to be honest with you, I'd have to offer him the definitions and see what he comes up with. Give me, a, let me give you an example. Stephen King very often has said in interviews that he just sits down and writes and he sees where the characters are going. I believe that. I totally believe that. I also realize that in interviews he's given, he talks about knowing what's going to happen at the end of a story. As my camera goes nuts because I'm moving my hands around. So it's very difficult for me because I'm a native Italian and I have to talk with my hands. So sitting on it. But anyway, I'm, 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 married I'm married to a Graziano. Good for you. <laughs> All about it. Um, plus, I, uh, I learned uh, Amislan in Singlish. So I very often will use my hands and people go, what do you um, Anyway, you know, I, I don't know. John Crowley swears he is a plotter. And I look at some of his novels, which I, I generally enjoy, and I go, you knew that scene was going to be there? No, no. I just said, okay, then shut up. <laughs> no, I truly believe everybody does some of both to a different degree. Um, they could be pantsers when they're developing the outline to their story. Nonfiction writers tend to be uh, plotters. They have to be. They they know where the story is going to end up. Their their feature piece, their news article. Wow, um, I never thought about this before. I do agree, though, that I think people are elements of both. And I will just share, I've, I've written a manuscript for a graphic novel, which is in the process of being published. And I will admit, it's a murder mystery. I knew that the mystery was going to be solved by a note that was found that said, remain perfectly clam. And then, and then I just created the characters, I guess, around that. So I, I, I agree with your point. Um, we're, we're coming toward the end. We're not there quite yet, but I want to be sure that people can find you. So I, I will share that um, if people go on Amazon and search for Joseph Carabas, C-A-R-R-A-B-I-S, they should be able to find pretty much everything you've published on there. Okay, and then... I know you have a website that you can direct people toward, and I know that there are some specific services you offer for writers and others. Um, would you please uh, give us your web address and talk a little bit about those services? The web address is josephcarabas.com. I know it's creative as all heck. Um, I was obviously a plotter when I came up with the name to the website. <laughs> I've also started something largely because of you, young man, a Substack thing. Um, the, it, I believe the title of it is Nothing to Do with Gay Arthropods, um, which obviously it does because that's the title. <laughs> there you go. 
um, <clears throat> the services I offer. A lot of people have asked me to help them improve their writing. And, uh, and there's two parts to that. If I realize you are seriously, seriously want to improve your writing and you, you're going to put the time in, I'll give you as much as I can. I'll just sit down with you. I'll look at your stuff. I'll go over it point by point with you. If you tell me you want to improve your writing and you basically want to have somebody say, wow, this is amazing stuff, I charge what most people consider a very hefty fee. So uh, I can do that individually. I can do that in a group setting. Um, a lot of the people who have worked with me have gone on to receive awards. A lot of the people who have worked with me haven't. So, um, But, uh, you know, it, it really comes down to, are you writing something that has meaning? Um, anybody can write, you know, I'm reading a book now, which is basically science fiction, BDSM, BSMD. Spanking, whatever that is, bondage. I never, I, I picked the book up by accident. Number one, I'm impressed as heck at how beautifully the stories are written. The craft is amazing. Some of the stories, the craft is amazing, but some of the stories, why did you put this in a science fiction setting? Why don't you just have them in the bedroom slapping each other? It'd be a lot quicker. <laughs> some of the stories, the, the, aspect to the story is the bondage sadism masochism aspect to the story is integral to the plot that is great that is powerful because that was that's not something they tacked in that was what gave meaning to the final part of the book and the story um and also, to be honest, after I think I've read like half the book now, it's an anthology. I'm like, oh, can we find a different way to slap somebody? Oh, dear God. Um, and the other thing I've learned is that the language for that type of writing is very consistent. Hmm. Um, not to tout my own work, but people tell me that I am constantly refreshing and renewing, but I don't use the same metaphors, the same axioms. Which I'm like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yes. Thank you. Um, I don't mean to trivialize anything, but that could be easily explained by your intellectual curiosity and by the fact that you continue to research and learn. Um, I'm not sure there's anything else better to help a writer evolve, progress. Always researching. I love to do research. I love to learn stuff, what's in my stories, or just in my head for later on. Uh, Joseph, I thank you very much for being here with me today. It has been uh, a, a pleasure and an honor, um, and I, I'm grateful for the compliments that you've given me. Thank you. Um, I do hope that everyone who has been with us today reaches out to Joseph if you're interested to find his work on Amazon, to go to his website, please. And I will be back here in two weeks, and I hope to see you then. Thank you very much.
Thank you for tuning into The Anxious Voyage, the program dedicated to sharing stories, helping people, and celebrating life. You can see and listen to The Anxious Voyage on syndicated Dream Vision 7 radio network every Monday at 1 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern Time, with live broadcast every first and third Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern. If you have a story to tell, or if you know someone who does, please email the host, Mark O'Brien, at mark at o'briencg.com. In the meantime, please remember, the only bad stories are the ones we don't share. This is Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, uniting mankind with universal love. Our shows are created from the heart, bringing each listener to a place of divine enlightenment. Breathe, relax, and enjoy. Let life flow. Flow. 